Hi, and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. Thanks, Paul. If you have your Bibles with you, um, please open them to Joshua chapter 1. And no doubt this is a, um, a, a book that you are probably very familiar with and uh, therefore I need to be very careful <laughs> about how I expound on this uh, particular book. Let me ask you a question. How do you measure success? How do you measure whether someone is successful or not? How do you measure your own success? I guess success in sports means winning the grand final, right? Coming second just, just doesn't cut it. Success at school could mean getting straight A's or even just graduating. Success at work could mean getting that promotion that you've always dreamed of. We measure how successful we are in these activities by our achievements. The greater the achievement, the greater our success. When it comes to living our lives for the Lord as Christians, how do we measure our success? How do we measure the success of our lives as we live for the Lord? We might say that a Christian is successful because they have read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation more than once. We might say that a Christian is successful because they attend church more than once a week. We might say that a Christian is successful because they've been on the mission field. Or we might say that a Christian is successful because they don't swear and they don't drink alcohol or do any other bad things. I guess there are many other things that we might say makes a Christian successful, right? probably have a list of those things already in our mind of what that looks like. He's a moral man. He's a sinless man. Which is impossible. Now, it's a difficult thing for the Christian to measure success because really ours is a society that's where, where success is really determined by society, isn't it? We have a, ours is a success-oriented society.
We reward the successful, whether they be businessmen, executives, pastors, athletes, teachers, students, politicians, or parents. We don't reward failures, do we? We don't reward people who fail. Instead, we kick them in the guts. We kick them when they're down. Of course, how the Christian should measure success shouldn't be at all the same way as what the world does. The world says success is a large portfolio of investment properties, a CEO position in a major company, more of this, more of that. Without them, says the world, our life has counted for nothing. You know, that's the dilemma I'm faced with personally as the pastor of this church. And I'm sure many pastors go through the same thing. We want to have a successful ministry. We really do. We don't want to be failures. No pastor wants to be a failure. But I guess the problem is how will we measure the success of our ministry? How will you measure the success of your ministry and your Christian life. Well, you know what the natural thing to do is, don't you? The natural thing for some pastors is to measure their success based on numbers. Based on how many people we can get sitting in those seats. How many people we can get along to church. And you as a church will be measuring my success based on how many seats there are that aren't empty. Don't get me wrong, folks. I, I don't have a problem with numerical growth. As far as I'm concerned, bring it on. I want to see numerical growth. I'm praying specifically that this church will grow in number. I'm praying that as God saves people, as we go out and proclaim the gospel in this community, that they will desire to come to this church where they will be taught good, sound doctrine and where we will grow together in our faith and our love for the Lord. But is that really how God measures the success of of a church's ministry by numbers. I think our world today is, uh, you know, particularly when you think about government departments, it's all numbers orientated. I was talking to a friend of mine who's, uh, who's sort of connected with the government department and they were saying they just can't believe how focused they are on numbers. People are unimportant nowadays. It's all about numbers, figures. That's the world we live in. That's how the world measures success. Does God measure the success of a church's ministry by the amount of people we can get along to church? Does he measure the success of a ministry by numbers? read the whole Bible. <laughs> He's not a numbers man. 
when you think about it, it was it was strange for Israel to be chosen by God to be his people in the Old Testament because they were one of the smallest nations of that time. And even now they are. Remember, Jesus had a big following, didn't he? How many? What standard do we use to measure success or failure of church ministry and how does God measure the success of church ministry? You know, of course, that God does not measure success by profit, by prosperity, or by prestige. God measures success by faithfulness. That's what I want to talk about a bit this morning. The measure of success is faithfulness. Whether you're a pastor, whether you're a lay minister, whether you're a young Christian, whether you're an older Christian, according to God, the measure of success is faithfulness. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Joshua 1, verses 1 to 5. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses from the wilderness in this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I have been with Moses. God said, I will be with you. God said, I will not fail you or forsake you. The tribe of Israel has come to the end of its 40-year wilderness uh, journey. Poised on the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River, with the promised land in their sights. They await direction from God to go Joshua, since he was a young man, had always been under the leadership of Moses. But now the buck stops with him. He has been given the task by God to go and to conquer the promised land, to do the will of God and to fulfill God's promise. Now I can imagine what Joshua may have been thinking as he stood there looking at this huge task ahead of him. The obstacles that he faced were no doubt daunting. He had some big shoes to fill. Let's face it, Moses was the man. The people had come to trust and respect the leadership that Moses gave. Under his leadership, they had escaped Egypt. Under his leadership, they had seen God part the Red Sea. Under his leadership, they had seen food drop out of heaven. Under his leadership, they had seen stone 
turned to water. But now Moses is dead. There's a new kid on the block. It's a new leader. Obstacle number one for Joshua. He also had to lead the people across the Jordan River, which at that time they say there would have been a huge volume of water coming down from the mountains. It wasn't going to be easy to, to cross that river. Obstacle number two. Then he had the inhabitants of the land to contend with. And they weren't going to just lie down and hand over their homes, were they? They were prepared to fight. And remember 40 years earlier, when the spies went into the land as God commanded them to do, What do they do? They come back with their report and say, Whoa, there's some giants living in that land. Well, we're not going in there. They'll kill us. And Joshua and Caleb, they come back and say, It is as the Lord has said. Let's go. They believe God at his word. I mean, the people must have been that big that we're told in the Old Testament that the spies came back with grapes. It took two of them to carry the grapes because they were big grapes for big people. Obstacle number three. And I would think obstacle number four would be their own trust. Trust God at his word. Be an obstacle for them, as it has always been, and as it is, continues to be. Sometimes we as God's people, we, we struggle to trust him at his word. Just like these people would have. But I'm sure we can all relate to what Joshua may have been thinking. I'm sure we've all come up against obstacles in our lives. Maybe not quite like Joshua. But we've all faced obstacles in our lives where we've just said to ourselves, What am I going to do now? Lord, what am I going to do? Whether it's been at school, in the workplace, at home, or in the, the sports arena, even in the church. We've all faced obstacles in our lives where we've cried out, what am I going to do now? It may be your cry now. You may be facing an obstacle even now, crying out to the Lord, now what, Lord, what do I do? this success-oriented world, what would you do? What would you do to overcome those obstacles? Let's see what Joshua was instructed to do. God said to him, 
Joshua 1, chapter 1, verse 6, verse 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. God swore that land to them. Didn't he? And Joshua needed to be strong and courageous. Why? When God had promised the land. Think about that. He goes on to say, The Lord does only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from, from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. You want to know how you can have success in the Lord? Here it is. There it is, folks. God instructs Joshua to be strong and courageous. Why does Joshua need strength and why does he need courage? Well, he needed strength and courage in order that he would be careful to do all the law of Moses, not turning to the right or the left of it. And then what would be the result? Success. Yes, Joshua would be successful if he was careful to do all the law of Moses. There you go. If you want success, then do the law of Moses, right? <laughs> Just do the law of Moses. But what is the law of Moses? And how do we do it? Well, that word law in the original language the book of Joshua was written in is the word Torah. In our context today, let's just fast forward to today, that word Torah for us means those books you're holding in your laps. <clears throat> but to them in those days, it was the, the writings of Moses. It was probably the first five books of the Old Testament. And God says, there you go. There's the law of Moses. Follow that. Let me say, uh, we need to be careful here that we, we don't become people who take this literally and think that we've got to obey the law. And therefore we go about trying to obey the law of God let me say that's what we have to do. We each and every Christian must follow the law of God. Amen? Perfectly. Amen? That's right. But we know in our own hearts we can't. Therefore we need something or someone to help us isn't it interesting that the Hebrew word Joshua in the Greek and in the Greek Jesus is called 
Joshua. We need a Joshua in the New Testament. And who comes along? Jesus. Yehovah is salvation. That's who did the law. That's who fulfilled the law. Kept it perfectly as you and I couldn't. Isn't that, isn't that something to be rejoicing over? You know? I struggle with religious people who think they can keep the law and who expect everybody else to keep the law. Have they not searched their own hearts and realized that they can't keep the law? You know, I talk often to people like the Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons and people like that who believe that, you know, that that's what we need to do. We are saved by works. It's about what we do that causes God to love us because we're doing stuff. But have you ever tried to keep the law in its fullness? I haven't. But if you have, you realize by now that you can't. And therefore, you need Christ who did perfectly. That's grace. That's, that's, that's uh, what they call double imputation in theology where our sins are imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness, and we say hallelujah, amen, praise the Lord. That the Joshua of the New Testament can do that. Because the Joshua of the Old Testament couldn't. Let's carry on. Sorry about that. We've just got off track. But that's me. How do we do it? How do we keep this, this law of Moses? And how are we not to turn from it uh, to the right or to the left? I think the Apostle Paul in his second letter to Timothy put it like this. He said, do your best. Make every effort. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. Those two words, rightly divide, are actually one word, and it literally means to cut it straight. That was Paul's, the Apostle Paul's profession. That was his job. He would cut it straight, referring to uh, tent making. But he couldn't cut it crooked, otherwise you'd have a funny-looking tent. <laughs> he had to cut it straight. Everything had to be done exactly as the plan said. And that was the instruction, I believe, given to Joshua by God, that he was not to turn from it to the, to the right or to the left, but he was to cut it straight. He wasn't to lean on philosophy. That's not cutting it straight. That bears off to the either the right or the left. I would say to the left. He wasn't to lean on philosophy. He wasn't to lean on reasoning. The, the, the reasoning of the people of the land. And, and, and listen to what they thought. Or how they interpreted the situation. But he was to cut it straight. 
Stick to the Word. He wasn't to deviate from God's instructions on how to conquer the land, on how to overcome the obstacles before him, on how to know what he was going to do now. But he was to trust that God's Word, the Torah, the Bible, was enough. He was to trust that God's Word would not return void. And that the promise that God had made to Abraham, that he would give him a land flowing with milk and honey and lots of money, was about to be realized. That's what that meant. To trust God at his word. Do you trust God at his word? Do you believe his word? Let me ask you another question. Is the Bible, is it enough for you? Does God's word satisfy you? Are you content to take God at his word even when you don't quite understand it? Do you believe that God only speaks truth? That he cannot lie? And do you believe that this Bible that we have, when it's inspired and illuminated by the Holy Spirit, is the word of God, is if it's coming out of his mouth? Therefore, do you believe it's even when you don't understand it. You know, uh, uh, I've used this illustration before, you know, what color is that wall over there? It's kind of grainy timber, isn't it? Let's say it's brown. We say it's brown. God just said it's white. Who's right? Us or God? But it looks brown. But God just said it's, therefore what color is it? Wow, that's how it works, doesn't it? When God says something, you have to believe it to be true, even though we might not perceive it that way. We might perceive it to be different because we are coming at it with our humanness, our fallen nature. We have to believe God at his word. <clears throat> so there are things in the Bible which, we can, which can be difficult to understand at face value, but we must take God at his word without putting any outside interpretation on his word. It's important we do that. We come to the scriptures, we ask God to speak to us, not us speak to him. We don't tell him what the meaning is. But we seek him to give us the meaning. The Bible is really easy to read, folks. It's not that hard to read. It's pretty simple, you know. It's, it's, it's made up of words. Some of those words are difficult because they are in different language. 
But we know the da and the these and the those, and, and we know what that all means. And I think too often we, 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 we scramble into the Bible and we just read it really quickly because we just want to get through it. I encourage my Bible study group to not be concerned about getting through the Bible. Uh, you know, that we have to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation before we go and stand before God. Otherwise, he might not let us in. No, we are saved by grace alone. I don't think God's going to be too concerned if you haven't read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Amen? Doesn't that give you some hope now? <laughs> it should do. I'm taking this. Some of you here haven't read the whole Bible at least once. I encourage my guys to read one book. Even if it's the smallest book in the Bible, read it and read it and read it and read it and read it until you've memorized it. You know why? Scripture does not contradict itself. God does not contradict himself. If it says it there, guaranteed it'll say it everywhere. Now you can get the full Bible in one book. In fact, one book does not explain the whole Bible, but the whole Bible explains one book, one word. So I encourage you, if you haven't read the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, don't freak out. You're saved by grace alone, not by anything that you've done or haven't done. It's simply by grace. But read one book. And read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. Read Romans and read it and read it and read it and read it and read it. And you have said, God, who is great and merciful, full of grace. That's what he wants you to do, to know him better. <clears throat> and so do you come to his word and read it for what it says without putting any outside information or interpretation on it? Some people come to the word of God like the man whose friend would always finish his sentence. You might have a friend like that. You know, the man would begin to say something and his friend would always finish it. I went to the car dealers yesterday to buy a new car. You know, to pick up my wife, she works there. You know, I was walking down the street the other day and I bumped into Joe. You know, the lamppost. <laughs> and we too can be like that annoying friend when... We imply on the Bible what the Bible doesn't actually say. And the temptation to put to, to that is, is strong. It's a strong temptation that we have, isn't it? And sometimes we just can't help but do that. And like any temptation, we must fight it and resist it. We must say that even though I don't understand it, it's there. God has spoken. That's how God instructed Joshua. He said, do not turn from it to the right or to the left. So God instructs Joshua to be strong and to be courageous and to be careful to do all the law of Moses and he would have success in fulfilling the will of God. And you know, it takes courage to speak the truth of the gospel. 
especially in a world where truth is unimportant or where truth is irrelevant or where truth is what you make it. Especially in a world where the measure of success is that big portfolio, that thriving business, that grand final trophy. But success to God, folks, is a lot different. Jeremiah is a good example of this. Jeremiah chapter 1, you can turn there, but it's on the screen. Verse 4, from verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And I said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. And the Lord stretched out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of me, for I am with you. Deliver you, declares the Lord. You know, the prophet Jeremiah preached to a people, as you know, who were stubborn. They were immoral, they were wicked, they were just unsafe people. They believed that they were successful without God's help. They believed that their religious fervor was the measure of their success. And so Jeremiah, instructed by God, preached the gospel, the message of repentance to everyone whom God had sent him, yet not one single person turned. Not one single person repented. Now, in a professional world, Jeremiah was a failure. Dare I say, in some churches, he was a failure. Because no one believed his message. Even his own family sought to kill him after he had preached to them. You know what? God considered him very successful. Why? Because he cut it straight. He was careful to do according to the law of Moses, the Torah, the Bible, the word of God. You know, it's so easy to misunderstand the Bible's interpretation of success, especially when we unknowingly look at it through worldly spectacles. 
See, the world says success is more of this and more of that, bigger and better, richer and poorer, or richer and richer, sorry. But, you know, God's ways are not man's ways, don't you? And success for him isn't about that promotion or in your workplace, or even though there's nothing wrong with getting the promotion, folks. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. For the Christian, that is not the measure of our success. Success for God is about being faithful to God. It's about being careful to do according to all the law of Moses. It's about cutting it straight, not turning to the right or to the left, not listening to that one or that one, but listening to this one. Oh yes, we have some very clever people and have studied and uh, theological giants in our world and even dead ones. Well, we can listen to what they say, but we believe this above them. One of my favorite authors, John Piper, in his book titled Brothers, We're Not Professionals, really spills it out specifically for pastors, but also anyone who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he kind of says that we're not called to a profession. Being a Christian is not a profession. Do you know that? Being a pastor is not a profession. Being an elder is not a profession. Being a deacon is not a profession. Being a lay person is not a profession. We are not in a profession. But we are called to faith. We are called not to be successful, but we are called to be faithful. To be people of faith. There's another aspect to this biblical success that we must take hold of too. You've heard about what we must do. Let me tell you this. We can do nothing unless He is at work in us. It is the faithfulness of God No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I have been with you, Moses. What does God say? I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. That's God talking. That's what he will do. He will not fail him. He will not forsake him. He says, I will. Tell you, if you haven't got the backing of God behind you, You're lost. Have I not commanded you, says the Lord, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. Not might be with you, not maybe if you're doing it right. He says, I am with you wherever you go. Isn't that a great God to have by your side? He'll never leave you nor forsake you no matter what failures 
you enter into no matter what mistakes you make and I will tell you now you will make mistakes you will fail we are not strong men and women the Christian is not a strong man or a strong woman but we are very weak he chose the foolish things of this world he chose the weak things of this world not the strong we are not strong. We are very weak. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says, saying, What do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over you, Jeremiah. No, I'm watching over my word to perform. Isn't that interesting? You would expect the Lord to say, I'm watching over you, Jeremiah. He says, no, I'm watching over my word. What does the Lord mean? How many books in the Bible? The six. What's the first book? And usually titled the beginning, isn't it? Beginning of creation. What's the last book? Revelation, and we sort of think of Revelation as uh, the book of the end times, don't we? You could say Genesis is the beginning and Revelation is the end, right? So in the beginning God created, in the end he destroys, right? Where would you put us today? Would you put us in the book of Revelation? If we could put ourselves chronologically in either of these books, 66 books, which part of the Bible do you think we would be? I mean, honestly, we're not in there. <laughs> but, uh, but hypothetically, you know, um, I guess we wouldn't put ourselves in the book of Revelation, would we? Why? Because it hasn't happened yet. And we wouldn't put ourselves in the book of Genesis, would we? Why? Because it's already happened. And we probably wouldn't put ourselves in the Old Testament because that's all history. So I guess somewhere between the book of Revelation and uh, the New Testament epistles, we would kind of fit in there somewhere. Maybe just, we, we, we're that, that gap, you know, just before the book of Revelation, that sort of blank part you know before it gets into the book of Revelation that's where you might put us when did God when did God when did he determine the book of Revelation well before John spoke it before John wrote it wasn't it so the book of Revelation is a future story that hasn't happened yet. Get this. Written in the past, in the beginning, before the beginning. God is watching over his word. Watching over his word to perform it. 
66 books there. We're just waiting for one, waiting for one to be a reality, aren't we? You think it's going to happen? You believe that? Right. So you should. What does it mean for us as God's people in relation to who God is? It means that we can trust him. It means that he is faithful to perform his word. It means that everything that he has decreed will come to pass. That means that every person that he has chosen before the foundations of the world will be saved. Did you know that? That not one single one will be lost. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God is not slow, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you who aren't saved yet. How can we be assured of that? Because we have the end right here. The finished product. The finished story of God right there. And not one single one is lost. Watching over his word. Isn't that great? See, we, we are a people who think that we've got to do, we've got to do, and, and if we don't do this, then, then they're going to miss out. If we don't go and evangelize the lost, then, then they're not going to get saved. And God will come and then they'll miss out. That's not the God of that Bible. That is the God of this Bible. God of this Bible is watching over his word and performing it. What great comfort that is, folks, for you and I today. Does it mean we don't go out and evangelize the word, the gospel? Oh, definitely not. Why? Because his word commands us to. Yesterday, we, we, some of us went out and we, we went door knocking again like the Jehovah Witnesses and we met our neighbours Unlike the Jehovah Witnesses, uh, we weren't so pushy with uh, our doctrine, um, but we were prayerful that the Lord had appointed that time. And we're going to keep knocking on those doors, and we're going to keep trying, and we're going to keep praying. We're going to keep praying that people will come to faith. Just like Joshua went into the promised land to conquer it. We want to conquer this community for the glory of God and for the joy of people. It's in here. Is God a faithful God? Is he a God you can trust? then you are very successful. Even though we are failures, God is not a failure. We can trust him 
that he is faithful to do what he has promised to do. Amen. And not a promise will be broken. Not a promise will be missed. Chew on that for the day. Just think about that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And as the music team comes up, Lord, we, we just want to thank you for the way that you are working and, and, and ministering amongst us, Lord, that, that you are doing your will. We pray that uh, model prayer. And every time we pray it, Lord, we are acknowledging that your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And it would be a fool to think that we would that you, you weren't doing your will, that somehow you were so weak that you couldn't do it. But we thank you that you are, and because of that, Lord, uh, we have great reassurance. We think of that, that verse in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, he who began a good work in you is able to complete it. Not might complete it, not will or won't complete it, but is able to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And we look forward to that day. Until then, keep our eyes on you. Keep us fixed on you. That you will never leave us, nor will you forsake us. That you will not fail us. That you will do as you have promised to do, and you are doing it even now. And Lord, nothing surprises you. You are not a God who is surprised by anything. You are not a God who lacks information. You have all the information from before the foundations of the world and to the end of the book of Revelation. You are missing a thing. And there is nothing, therefore, that surprises you because you are the omniscient God, the all-knowing God. So, Father, we thank you. Bless us, we pray. Help us to cut it straight. Help us to trust you again. In Jesus' name.